that sermon bumper filmed up on the third floor. You guys ever been up there? On that side, it's pretty creepy. You can film horror movies and stuff. Don't go up there. It's, it's tough. Well, hey, last week, John Wood preached the word. Didn't he do great? And uh, he and his wife are expecting their second baby. A couple of weeks ago, Daniel Wagner preached. He and Carly had their first baby. And I'm preaching today. And Susan and I, no babies. We are done. I'm going to go see Daniel and Carly today. Aren't you happy for them? What a great couple. That baby, baby Stella. Go ahead and clap for Stella. Because... Uh, she won the lotto with them as parents and with a church like Fondren to come around them. It's just going to be great. I'm so excited. I'm going to go visit them today and rejoice with them and remind them that the U.S. government calculations for the average cost of raising a child from birth to age 18, not counting college, is almost $300,000. So we're done, babe, because we got close to a million right on the front row with us today. But just so excited, right? We don't, we don't worry about their cost when they're born, just their value. Isn't that the way? That's what gets us through it. Hey, we're in this series. We're, we're not in it. We're, we are in it, but we're wrapping it up as we talked about today. Will God come through? And that is a question fundamental to humanity. It's central to the core of who you are and everybody experiences it, not just once. Honestly, it's relentless, isn't it? And I think that's why we've made this a seven-week series as we've asked these specific questions walking through this ancient book. And today, as you've seen, we address this question in these 30-something minutes, and that is, will God come through when I need courage? Anybody need courage today? Nod at me. I'll know you're uh, not asleep yet that you're with me. I bet if we were, not going to do it, but if we were to ask if you had a debilitating fear, a fear that you were wondering if you could overcome, and I would ask you to stand just as a manifestation of that, to signify that, I bet you some of you would have the courage to stand and say uh, that you're lacking in courage, that you have a fear today that's holding you back. Fear's funny, especially in an age of high tech. And here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible, and I don't want to, I don't want to go there today. I don't want it to sound like it today. I don't want anybody to get the sense that this is motivational psychobabble. Because the Bible, unlike motivational stuff, it doesn't give us, when it comes to fear, it doesn't give us a pat on the back and it never says, go get them, it's not that bad out there. In fact, it's pretty blunt about how bad it is out there. So no motivational psychobabble, but the message of the Bible, story after story, man and woman, learning that it is bad out there and there's a lot to be afraid of, but God is greater. In fact, God, his power far exceeds any fear that you may be, that you may have. Might as well say that up front today because that's where we're going. But hey, we live in a high tech world, don't we? Everybody is aware of this and it's easy for us. In fact, some of our fears are, they emanate, they come from some people fibbing. Okay. Some of our fears are from some people's fibs. We all know, unfortunately, with today's political climate, we know the reality of fake news. We can't really agree what is fake news, but I did a little compiling as I was preparing for this sermon on vacation. Always hard to write a sermon on vacation. Uh, doesn't seem right. But anyway, I did a little compiling of some fake news. In fact, Facebook, some of you might be aware of this historically, that in 2017, Facebook took a lot of heat for failing to vent or regulate news. And so there were some headlines a couple of years ago. Uh, I'll give you a few. Here's one. Charles Manson released on parole in Johnson City, Tennessee. Now that doesn't scare me because I don't live in Johnson City, Tennessee. 
But if I did, everybody would be looking a little bit like Charles Manson, right? Here's another headline. Weapon-toting clowns go on a murderous rampage. Could you imagine? Millions of people read this and some actually bought into it. Dangerous clowns running around while you're trying to sleep. That headline led to this headline. Congress passes a law authorizing citizens or legalizing citizens being able to shoot and kill suspicious clowns. (laughs) Now, here's my take on that. If a clown ain't at a circus, it's suspicious, all right? (laughs) That clown going down. Thank you, Congress. Another one, the final one, an elderly woman trains her 65 cats to steal from her neighbors. Another important take, if an elderly woman can train a cat to steal your TV remote, it's hers or theirs, whichever the case. But fear is a reality and some of us live off our fears come from other people's fibs. It's manufactured. There's even psychologists and doctors teach us a part of the brain that gets activated. Uh, Things get released, hormones and chemicals and things fire in there and it gets activated just by watching the news or pulling out that rectangular idol of worship in your pocket and punching in your passcode and looking and enjoying screen time. We get fear all around us and it's real. The New England Journal of Medicine uh, put this equation together about fear, really profound. Fear is a heightened sense of vulnerability and a diminished sense of power. You see that? Heightened sense of vulnerability. I'm weak, I'm scared, I'm alone, I don't know what to do. And with that, this diminished sense of power. When I was out of college, I lived for four years in Tallahassee, Florida, and we were housekeeping for some folks who had a big old above-ground pool, and we were so excited because like here, it's hot in Tallahassee, Florida in the summertime, and we were taking care of the house and enjoying it, and we went swimming on those hot days, and one of my roommates at the time and friend noticed that the pool seemed to be leaking, and they pointed it out to me. I was kind of the person who knew the family, who kind of bargained, brokered the deal, And I thought, yeah, it's obvious that there's a slow leak in this above-ground swimming pool. That was going to hamper our summer fun, and it was probably going to get me blamed for doing something bad with this family uh, out of town. And so I went to the pool store to get something to fix this small leak, and I went in. One of their kids who wasn't home, they were out of town, had goggles. I put on the goggles, the kids' goggles. It was really tight around my head, cutting off circulation. I went under and uh, noticed that this small hole we we had found it and so I put this um, goo or whatever it was from the hardware store the pool store I I tried to attempt to put it on there and as I did the hole got bigger and bigger really really fast and a small tiny leak became a big hole and water was just gushing out of this pool and honestly I wasn't worried about the pool anymore I was worried about me getting taken out and I get out and there's this just craziness with losing this above ground pool all the water rushes out And fear can be that way for us, this heightened sense of vulnerability, this diminished sense of power. I'm trying to fix something. I'm trying to fix something, but I can't seem to hold on. The very thing I'm trying to do, it's not working out. In fact, it's getting worse as I attempt to fix this. And 1 and 2 Kings, some believe, was written by prophet Jeremiah who talked about broken cisterns. He talked about swimming pools that couldn't hold water and that we try and we try to go there for nourishment, but they break. 
They lose their power and what, we, what we're counting on to hold us, whether it's recreational fun or hydration and survival, it doesn't hold what we need it to hold. And we lose control, and that can be fear. One person, famous, who reached the pinnacle, the zenith of life, I think you could say, said this about his search to overcome his fears. Here's what I've tried in dealing with my fears. Individual psychotherapy, family therapy, group therapy, cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, exposure therapy, massage therapy, self-help tapes, acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, medication, lots and lots of medication, Thorazine, Nardole, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro, Luvox, Cerex, Centrax, Librium, Ativan, Xanax, also beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, scotch. Here's what's worked. Nothing. Yes. It's why probably we get a tinge of pleasure and joy when we see our heroes and our celebrities struggle like we do, right? Just on a larger scale. Just in in more public spectacle. But we ourselves, we're going and we're looking for ways to overcome our fears. This morning as we close this series and ask the question, will God come through when I need courage? We're going to look at 2 Kings 18 and 19. Some of you may want to turn there. Let me just be honest. It's going to be weird for a preacher to say. It's going to be a little confusing. We're going to jump around. So the best thing to do was focus on the passages on the screen. Maybe jot them down and check me later to make sure I'm being honest. But a lot of jumping around in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And what we've learned in 1 Kings 1 and 2, these two books, we've learned about important characters like Elijah and Elisha. And we've learned about... Israel's defeat and captivity in Assyria and Judah's defeat and captivity in Babylon. And we've learned about the faithfulness of God even amidst the waywardness and at times wickedness of man. And some of you know that Judah and Israel were, they were led by many, many kings and very few of them were good kings. Y'all know that, right? There were a lot of a lot of rebellious, wicked kings. Only a few of them were good. And here's what we learn about Hezekiah that you'll be introduced to today. First, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 18, 5. He, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. That's a great compliment, isn't it? To be recorded, to be spoken of in such a way. He was, he was unique and he was good. He was faithful to his God and he loved well. He cared for the poor and the orphan and the widow and he led his people with a humble servant spirit. He was a good king, but do not think that Hezekiah's life was a cakewalk. In fact, the king of Assyria and his mighty men were on the way and they had been, they were, they were barbaric, they were brutal, they were bloodthirsty and they were going through cities, towns, villages, nations, wiping out people and they had just conquered the city next to Jerusalem. Imagine if you're Hezekiah and he on the precipice of potential destruction hides. And his thought was, ah, if you're a king, what do you have at your disposal? You've got some resources. If you're a king, you're in a palace. You've got something to you. And so he sends a message to the king of Assyria. And it is, let's cut to the chase, it's a bribe. And he says, look, I've got silver. I've got gold. I've got stuff. I'll give you the stuff. What do you want? I'll give you what you ask for. 
to prevent this advancing and encroaching army from coming and pillaging this community and destroying what they know. And this king, these Assyrians, they have Hezekiah. They have these people in their crosshairs. You know, fear, if something's knocking at your door, if an enemy is near, if you're afraid of tomorrow, like literally afraid of tomorrow, if there's something just large standing at you, here's the thing about fear. Hear me now. Fear is not content with just getting you to feel discontent and queasy. Fear is not, fear is, it's not content to do that. Fear wants to completely destroy you. And Hezekiah, this good man, we've got some lessons to learn. I'm going to give you three briefly today. And the first is this. God gave Hezekiah the courage to live counterculturally. And what I'm saying about counter, what I'm saying today, this morning about Hezekiah, I believe can be true for you and I. Look what it says here in 2 Kings 18 and verse 4. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made, had made offerings to it. Here he is. What's happening here? Ancient language here. He's smashing and crashing and tearing down and breaking the, the things that people were putting their hope in. The philosophies of the day, what the culture, the, the shared set of beliefs and practices and values dominant in that time that went against God. And Hezekiah was given the courage to live counterculturally. Hmm. You think, you think that might be relevant to us today? Where's the culture going? Where's the culture around us? What's the dominant set of beliefs and practices and shared values? You see it moving more and more toward God or more and more away from Him. In, in your own life, you see how courageous you'll need to be to live for God. And here we see Hezekiah breaking things down and crushing them. You see, we have idols. You and I have idols in our lives. We look at the scripture. In fact, one place in Psalm 106, I don't have it on the screen, but Psalm 106, verse 19 and 20. You note takers, Psalm 106, verse 19 and 20. The scripture talks about how the people had set up idols of gold to worship them. And then it gives the metaphor. It says that in the end, invariably, they're like bulls eating grass. Now, that's not a good trade-off, is it? It says that they exchanged their glorious God for something that had the value of a bull eating grass. Now, when I went to college in basketball, when the ref would make a bad call, like the students would stand up and say, bull eating grass, bull eating grass, bull. They would chant that rhythmically. There's no value there, right? It's not worth anything. And Scripture is saying that about the people of old, but it's true of us. Whether 
It's money and investments, finances, career advancement and opportunities, getting a promotion and having a corner office, having a team that wins championships, having a home that you upgrade constantly, having a body that's tone and fit, on and on and on. And I already anticipate what you're thinking. You're saying, RG, those can be good things. Exactly. All those things can be good things. And that's just it. To quote one pastor I admire greatly, when good things become God things, then we have to call them idols. And they separate us. Look at Hezekiah, the one who broke and tore into pieces with righteous indignation because he saw the emptiness of it. He saw how it was tearing people apart. And God gave him the courage to live counterculturally, to say, hey, people, there's a different set of shared beliefs and values and practices that we need to operate from because that is empty it's a broken cistern and so he breaks it himself look what it goes on to say about hezekiah in chapter 18 verse 6 and 7 he trusted in the lord the god of israel so that there was none like him among all the kings of judah after him nor among those who were before him little repetition there any verse next to that that's it so his faithfulness he continued on and he continued on breaking down the idols god will give you the courage to break down the idols. Even in the midst of idol formation, John Calvin, the great Reformed theologian, says that the heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're not exempt, you and I. Our heart manufactures these passions and these affections and these objects that we go forward, that we go toward. They can replace these good things can replace God. They become idols in us. The call for the one who would follow after God is to live differently than the culture around them. Are you willing to? Do you know that if you do that, there's going to be some persecution. There's going to be some oppression. And those aren't religious words. That can be very real. If you say, I want to live differently, if you want to live and develop a heart for God, be willing to, to be left out and to be mocked and to be considered different. You know, the early church, this is important. I try to point it out periodically. It's an important part of world history that the early church was so different. And they were greeted with persecution and op oppression. But even in the midst of this, even in the midst of martyrdom, the church flourished the early church flourished it went from a few dozen people to a few thousand people to several million people in 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 its first couple of hundred years and they responded by saying we want to live differently there is this new command to love one another to love god with all your heart soul mind and strength to love your neighbor as yourself instead of retreating from the cities instead of retreating from what's hard we'll go in and we'll seek the peace and prosperity of the city and we'll go toward need and we won't retreat and be critical and judgmental but we'll love and we'll love everybody are you willing to be courageous God will give you, he will give you the ability, the courage to stand against culture. A second thing that God will give, as we learn from this story of Hezekiah, is he will give you courage when you ask for help. There's a special relationship historically between Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. And what's really cool, I think a Google search will, will show you this, 
but there's been some a very modern archaeological research to show this relationship, to give credence to this uh, time in history, to the accuracy of this uh, section of Scripture, a very violent time, a, a very... Um, troubling time in some ways, but it's so cool to see how this modern archaeological evidence points and supports the scripture, and particularly this relationship with Hezekiah, the king, and Isaiah, the prophet. And in this, Hezekiah, when faced with this hiding in a cave, being afraid and sending a message to the Assyrians of a bribe, in the midst of this fear, he has a friend who's a prophet. It's cool when you got a friend who's a prophet. I'm looking for one of those. And here's Hezekiah, and he goes to Isaiah, and here, listen to this passage. This is not that directly, but in this stretch. 2 Kings 19.3. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. I, look, I've been there. We've had three. It's very difficult, right? Very difficult. Here's this relationship. And Hezekiah says, there's distress and there's pain. And it hurts, but I need to ask for help. And can I say this? I'm talking to like half of you because there's one particular gen gender in the room where this is very difficult for. Where it's just, where we are just hesitant to ask for help. And hear me now. Your fears, your struggles, your secrets, your sin, you are not meant to bear this weight on your own. You need to ask for help. Hezekiah, if you read the larger story, you'll see his friendship with the prophet and friend, Isaiah. And he goes to Isaiah and he goes to God and asks for help. When we were newlyweds, we had a new neighbor move into the neighborhood and um, they were so annoying. And uh, he was annoying. And I want to tell you why he was annoying. Because he was good with his hands and he could just fix things. And like he, and he didn't just do manual labor, he enjoyed manual labor, which is a red flag to me, honestly. But I, I told Susan, that guy's weird. He annoys me. Like, I don't, even, I don't know if I want to, you know, share the love of Jesus with him. He's just annoying. And when things need, to, you know, he just, he builds things and fixes things and repairs things that need to be built and repaired and fixed. One of those guys. And a couple of times when something would break around the house, the garage door opener wouldn't work or the sink wouldn't drain or there needed to be new trim around the house or something uh, Susan would say to me lovingly we were newlyweds she, she already knew I was fragile and she would say to me Robert why don't you ask him for help and one day alone in my thoughts away from her presence I thought why don't I ask him for help do you guys know why say it together as a congregation pride because of pride and you know the sink and the garage and the trim around the house like not asking help for that is one thing but not asking help as a husband listen to me I don't, I don't care if you're a pastor here or if you're on staff oh, I've been going to church listen to me not asking for help to be a better husband or father or leader that's a big thing and years ago, it was early in my life. I wish it was earlier in my life. I remember sitting with a man I admire. And I broached the subject of where do you go when you need help? And he said, man, I'm so glad. He goes, I've actually sought help, professional counseling 
four times in my life. He just let his guard down. He said, hey, in college, I broke up with this girl, man, and it just got weird, and it was, things were going on, and I went, I went to see my college offered counseling, and I went to the counselor. And he said, later, uh, years later, I was discovering some emotional wounds, some things that had happened to me and had not happened to me, and these wounds were bringing pain and weirdness into my life, and I went to a counselor again. And he goes, and a, a year ago, my wife and I went to see a marriage counselor because we were just hitting some rough spots. And I thought, oh, if he's so free and I admire him, like I want to I be like him. If he can sit with a younger man like me and tell me that he has time and time again gone to get help for these things, why can't I? And let me lean on you now and say, why not you? Ask for help. Again, read the larger story and you'll see this friendship between Hezekiah and Isaiah. He asked his buddy for help. And look what it also says in this stretch in chapter 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. And look at this. He spread it before the Lord. So now, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand. Very real fear. Very real fear. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, or God along. Say this, if you will, Emmy, that last phrase I love. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus says, you, don't, you, not, you do not have because you do not ask. Next verse, you do not have because when you ask, you ask on your own lust that you may consume it for your selfish end. How selfish are your prayers? But look at this unselfish prayer. God, this for your glory. Like, yeah, I want to be saved. There's this human instinct for self-preservation and survival. We all have it. Hezekiah's got it. But I want this to ultimately be for your glory. And maybe I'm being too imaginative here, but I just, I just sense this open-handedness to his prayers. And I love this. If we could go back or maybe, maybe you can remember this. Yeah. He spread it before the Lord. That just gripped me this week. He spread it before the Lord. You ever do that? Ever done that? Ever, you know, C.S. Lewis says a lot of times our prayers are just worrying out loud. You're not, you're just worrying out loud. You're not really praying to God. You're not expecting God to do something. You're just worrying out loud. In fact, you're, you're in blatant disbelief and it's just worry out loud. It's not an earnest, heartfelt prayer with expectation that God might come through. But have you ever just assumed a different posture? Ever had a different heart? Ever been broken and pleading with the Lord and you've spread it out before Him? Regularly, I do that with the messages that I preach. There's a manuscript that gets worked on during the week and it gets down to seven pages and then five pages and then just on three pages and then I'm, I'm getting it ready in, in my heart and in my mind but there's a, a time sometimes it happens right beyond that window there in a little radio room and I just put down the message those notes and I, I spread it out before the Lord and I get down in that position and I just pray God use it use a broken vessel like me and spread it out before him I walked in years ago to a friend and I caught him with photos of their kids spread out on the floor and they were praying for their children spread out before the Lord. I wonder what the it could be in your life. You could open up and say, God, I don't want to just worry out loud. I want to seek you and I want to spread this out before you. I want to ask 
for help. I need your help in this. The third area beyond the courage to live counterculturally and the courage when we ask for help is this final. It's the courage to trust him when you're afraid. Look at this passage. We learn this about Hezekiah in chapter, back to chapter 18. Thus says the king. Now this is the, this is the Syrians and they're going to the wall of Jerusalem. Imagine modern times needing a wall. Like people thinking they need a wall to protect them. Isn't that funny? Isn't that a silly thing? But in ancient times, they wanted a wall to protect them from outsiders. In this day, from an invading army. And uh, the Assyrians, they got up on the wall and taunted them. Now, isn't that terrible? Like you're, you're already afraid. Now somebody's taunting you. That only makes it worse. And by the way, that can happen. You're afraid, you're wanting to trust God, and somebody's trash-talking you. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Verse 30, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. That would be like you leaving today and someone or a bunch of people being outside on a wall going, do not believe that Robert Green today. He, uh, he is lying to you. His God will not come through when you need courage. That'd be hard to operate up against. Back up verse in 2 Kings 18, 20. Seven, I want to go ahead and do this. I prayed about sharing this verse. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. Got to love the Bible, right? That's in there. A friend of mine says there's no trash talk like Old Testament trash talking. And here in the midst of these fears, Hezekiah is about to find out that God has got him. And God's going to take care of some estimated 185,000 men who are barbaric and who want to kill and pillage their village. A few verses as we close. 2 Kings 18, we're looking at 19, 21, 22, 35. Uh, they said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Stop for a second. That's a question. I present to you today on what do you rest this trust of yours you'll have people who want to harm you and you'll have people who love you and want to help you they'll watch you because everybody's life gets watched I've noticed as a preacher I got to be careful because they're watching and on Instagram they're posting preacher sneakers and preacher watches and they're given an estimate of what they cost and so I'm never going to wear a nice watch or a nice pair of shoes to church right the, the People watch you, people are observing you, and people are wondering, what do you believe in? What are you putting your trust in? And when something happens, when you face a setback, when the marriage gets hard, when the business goes south, when a kid rebels, when you're in over your head, people are watching you, what are you going to put your trust in? Next verse. Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Hezekiah is going to see, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Hezekiah is about to find out the greatness of his God. 
as we round toward home, I want to quickly tell you the story of somebody you may not have ever heard about. And I think he's one of the most colorful characters in American history. A guy by the name of Eddie Rickenbacker. Eddie Rickenbacker was famous during World War I as a flying ace. In fact, he led the way by shooting down 26 enemy aircraft in World War I. He was a designer, manufacturer of his own line of automobiles. He owned and operated the Indianapolis Speedway for 27 years. He was asked by the Secretary of Defense to deliver a message in 1942 to MacArthur, to General Douglas MacArthur. The message was so sensitive. I know you're going to want to look at this later. The message was so sensitive that they didn't even write it down. They gave it to him orally. He committed to memory. He made a special trip. And so on the night of October 18th, this very adventurous man who had flown so many missions before was asked as a regal servant of our country, as a top gun, if you will, to make this flight. So he got his goose and his maverick, his wingman, and on October 18th, 1942 this team of eight men flew to the South Pacific and as they left Hawaii they knew that they were traveling through Japanese controlled waters Rickenbacker and his men through a slight navigational error through an unexpected tailwind overflew this South Pacific Island and the air was so great that they couldn't make a turn back. They didn't have enough fuel and they were way out there. And they had to ditch the airplane. So moments later, eight men, you know, one crash, eight men on two rafts and three big problems. They didn't have a lot of food. They didn't know where they were. And the biggest problem, nobody else knew where they were. So they knew that Eddie Rickenbacker was the stud guy. They knew that he had stared death in the face before. And they're like, you're in charge of this operation called survival. And he immediately went into action. He instituted a few things. He, he put a, set up a two-hour watch system where the waters and the skies would be watched at all time by at least two sets of eyes. They had a plan. They had 12 chocolate bars, some oranges. He had a schedule of when and who would eat. They divided it up. The third thing that Eddie instituted in this operation of survival, he said, we're going to pray twice a day together. We're going to pray in the morning. We're going to pray in the evening. And one of the men had a, in his pocket, as they floated on the Pacific, one of these men had a small New Testament in his, his pocket. And these twice a day prayer meetings, they all talked about, turned into like a full-blown worship service. They would pass the Bible around this New Testament and some of the men would pick their favorite Bible verses and they would sing hymns of the faith or modern praise courses from Hillsong, whatever. But they would sing and they would read the Bible and they would have church. And suddenly on the eighth day, that just sounds biblical, doesn't it? Suddenly on the eighth day, as they were floating and praying, worshiping, worrying and wondering, Eddie 
felt something land on his head. Are you kidding me? They were so far from shore, y'all. How could this be? And it was a seagull. Of course, they were weak, anemic at this point. And Eddie, none of the men intuitively knew. Shh. Eddie slowly, inch by inch, lifts his weak arm up to his head. Best reflex he had, he snatches this seagull and feathers go everywhere, and he holds on to it for dear life. Within moments, they defeathered this bird, cut it into eight equal parts, and all these men in their autobiographies and their speeches and all, they talk about how this was the best meal they ever ate. But that's not all. They rigged a fishing line with the bird's intestines and caught some mackerel. And late that afternoon, are you kidding me? It started raining. They opened their mouths and they had a couple of bailing buckets and they caught this water. They drank this water. And they prayed for God's deliverance. They survived. They were delivered. God can do that. Again, I want to tell you, today is not about some motivational psychobabble. I'm not going to be up here, I'm not, I'm not up here today telling you and not closing this way by telling you there's nothing to be afraid of out there because there's a lot to be afraid of out there. I mean, honestly, I got a couple things in my life. I'm going to have to see if I believe my own sermon a little bit later this week, okay? But you too. There's a lot to be afraid of. But I'm telling you, we serve a God who can come through. As we seek Him, He can come through. But I want to close, really close quickly, quickly with this reality of a woman named Evelyn Husband. Her husband, Rick. I see some husbands over here, Warren and Vicki. This was Rick and Evelyn Husband, and Rick was the commander of the space shuttle Columbia. Evelyn and the kids, Matthew and Laura, were standing, and they were waiting for the Columbia and their father, the astronaut, their husband, to get back into Earth's orbit and to land in Texas. And as a lot of you know, the Columbia exploded. There's a picture on the cover of Time magazine with Evelyn and Matthew and Laura and some others. And behind them, there's a clock that says 11 minutes and 29 seconds. And they were smiling with anticipation. They didn't know that the shuttle was going to blow up. And in her book, High Calling, Evelyn writes this, and I pray that it nourishes somebody today whose heart is full of fear. I've lost all sense of politeness with God. I have cried and I've wept and I've yelled at him, but I know he's big enough to handle it. He has drawn me closer than I ever thought possible. He has held me close to his heart and let me cry for as long as I've needed. My sweet sister-in-law, Kathy, told me on February 1st that God would walk me step by step through this sorrow and he has time and time again what the Lord said in the Bible has proved faithful and true would you stand with me father we need courage God I pray to you our Savior this ancient story pointed to a story that was yet to come 
A story that we can look back on in the midst of so many stories of rescue and non-rescue, of deliverance and peace in the midst of loss, to a Savior on a cross who bled and died for us, who rose again, who tells his, all of his followers, do not fear, have peace, take comfort, for you are with us. And God, only you know the future and some of our fear is tied to our uncertainty. We don't know. We don't know if and when we'll be delivered from a storm-swept sea. We wonder if we'll survive. We don't know. We know we live in a world where death happens. In fact, it's going to happen to everybody. But be our peace. Be our courage. And we thank you as we close in worship today that we can come to the table. The bread representing your body broken for us and this juice representing your blood shed for us. And we worship you. Receive it now, Jesus. And you, in Christ, we pray. Amen. Our leaders are around the room with bread and wine, with juice. If you would today, follow the person in front of you. This is for every follower. We say it often. It's not about church membership or denominational affiliation. But it is for everyone who says, Jesus, I believe in you. So as an expression of your worship, as an act of remembrance, you come today, take the bread and just dip it, just the bread, just a corner of it into this juice. This represents his body broken, his blood shed for you. Let's do this act now.